Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Priscilla Clapp, had a 30-year career in the State Department, which ended in 2002 as the top U.S. official in Burma. She also served in top positions in South Africa in the early 1990s during the transition from apartheid, and also in Japan and Moscow. Clapp is the author, with Mort Halperin, of what I consider to be one of the most important books you can read on U.S. foreign policy. It's called Bureaucratic Politics and Foreign Policy, and as the title suggests, the book describes the role of the bureaucracy in shaping U.S. foreign policy. We kick off with an extended conversation about that book and then have another extended conversation about how Clapp, as the State Department official in charge of refugee programs in the late 1980s, used tools of bureaucratic politics to help engineer the emigration of Jewish refugees from Russia to the United States. This is a great conversation, a little longer than most, but well worth it. As I said, she had had a very long career in the U.S. Foreign Service, and we talked through a lot of that career in addition to her contributions to academia. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. I post one of these longer conversations with a foreign policy thought leader or newsmaker every Monday. Every Thursday, I post shorter conversations about something topical and in the news, and you can find them all at globaldispatchespodcast.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes, get in touch with me via the contact button, get our app for free. It's all there. And now here is Priscilla Clapp, who's now with the U.S. Institute of Peace. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So I have the second edition. When was the first edition published? The first edition was published in 1974, finished in 72, essentially, or 73. It took a while to get it out. We were at Brookings at the time. was published in '74, so the second edition is is 30 years later. Yeah, so I, yeah, mine says 2006. Okay, so it you are the co-author with uh, with Mort Halperin. Where did the idea for this book come from? It was Mort. Um, there was a, a school at the time that was developing with Mort Halperin and Graham Allison at Harvard, and um, several other people in the in in the academic world who were writing about the impact of bureaucracy on the way foreign policy decisions came out. It was a new area of analysis. And so the purpose of Mort's book was to break it down into parts so that you could use it as a model for analyzing individual decisions, particular decisions. And that's why in the first book they used a decision as sort of, you know, the, the thread that, that, weaves throughout the book. What was the decision? In each chapter, they explain how 
how that part of the bureaucracy affected that part of the decision. Uh, what was that decision? Uh, I'm trying to remember. It was, it was something that had to do with arms control and nuclear weapons that was announced um, during the Johnson administration, I think by McNamara, when those guys were in the Pentagon. I mean, Mort Halpern and some of his colleagues were in the Pentagon at the time. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but but I took it out of the out of the later edition because it was ancient history by then. <laughs> uh, but the idea, I think, if I recall correctly, uh, the 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 decision. Um, I, I don't remember the the, the actual decision, but um, the upshot was it was sort of an illogical decision. But it, there was a very logical way. Yeah, that it didn't illogical, make sense. It yeah. was internally. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. It was like a lo- the 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 decision itself didn't make sense uh, when, That's when right. was illogical, but all the steps leading up to that decision were logical. Yeah, and explained why it came out that way. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So what was your, mm-hmm. I guess, contribution then to, to, to the, the later edition and, and the book? Well, I did the later edition. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, right after I retired in 2002, Mort came to me and said that Strobe Talbot at Brookings, who was a big fan of the bureaucratic politics model, I mean, a lot of the writing that he did as a journalist um, used that. He came face to face with it as a journalist and trying to understand foreign policy decisions. So he wanted a second edition. He wanted it updated. Uh, and Mort didn't have the time to do it, take it on himself, so he asked me to do it. Um, and when I got into it, I realized after <laughs> 30 years in the government that, um, that uh, there were some things that desperately needed updating and uh, some things that were had not been accurate in the first one particularly the description of the state department the state department had changed immensely in that period of time so the the discussion of the state department in the 2006 edition is totally different mm-hmm. from the earlier mm-hmm. one and some laws were passed that changed the role of the congress so more actually wrote that part, and, and we put uh, a section in on the role of the Congress, which hadn't been in the earlier book. Because, uh, you know, the, the earlier book, the 70s, was really a, a, a look at the post-World War II policy world. That's what it was like during, during the Cold War, post-World War II. And the Congress played a very different role than it does today. Uh, and the bureaucracy operated differently than it does today, and it was a lot smaller then. Decisions were, I mean, it, it seemed big, but it was, in fact, compared to today, a lot smaller and not as complex as it is today. It's, it's, uh, what's it's, happened in the intervening years is that various um, interest groups, particularly on human rights and various aspects of human rights, have become embedded structurally in the government in the decision making system in other words they're not they're not entering the decision process from the outside in the form of lobbyists or ngos or whatever they're actually in the government representing those interests and the people who come into those air, those departments tend to come from the ngos on the outside yeah you look they're, at they're currently the, the head career of bureaucracy. Yeah, the head of of the the Department of what the Population Labor uh, is is Tom Malinowski, right? The the longtime Human Rights yeah. Watch guy. 
Yeah, although he had been in the government before. He was in the government um, during the the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. But he came from uh, Human Rights Watch to that position at the State Department. Yes, he did. He did. And in fact, during the first Obama administration, this is out of the rumor mill, but um, during the first Obama administration, when Obama had uh, laid down very strict laws against hiring any lobbyists, into these positions in the government, um, Tom was ruled out. Yeah, because he was a lobbyist second, for Human Rights Watch. It's, it's a lobby. It's a lobby organization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so he was ruled out of some positions that he would like to have had at that time, um, and particularly on Burma. Um, and uh, uh, in the second Obama administration, that had had been relaxed somewhat. And I think, uh, Kerry coming in as, as secretary of state was able to make the case for Tom. So to it's come a, into the, the department. It's interesting to me that, that you said strobe Talbot, uh, you know, as, as a formal, formal, former journalist asked, uh, for an update to this book. You know, when I read the book, I was a journalist and, uh, was also studying it at graduate school and um, the class was called something like How Washington Works or something like that, taught by a, a former mm-hmm. CIA guy. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I kind of came into that class kind of with a cocky attitude. I, I'd say I was, you know, had been studying and reporting on foreign policy for a few years at yeah. that time. And I kind of thought, all right, well, I know how this works. This is a summer class. Yeah, I just right. want to get that credit. And then I read the book and and it really, I think, identifies and defines um, trends and terms that I had witnessed as a journalist, but you just so clearly um, define them as established phenomenon in the right. bureaucracy. And that's what I, I found that's so right. valuable. And I think what, what all students of, of foreign policy would, yeah. would So many find journalists so make the mistake in foreign policy decisions of assuming that there is some overarching national interest that guides everything. And <laughs> In a, in a way, there is, but that's not what guides the actual decisions. <laughs> so in your long career in the State Department bureaucracy, can you just talk through maybe one decision where you saw some of the trends that you identify in your book being played out in real time? Well, I actually had to manage a very complex decision process, and my experience with that book is what helped me manage it, because I knew that working i had to work with a disparate group of government agencies and and b- bureaus inside the state department who were at loggerheads with each other and i knew that in order to get this decision through the process i was going to have to build something for everybody into it and and what was and, that can you talk and, me through some of that some heavy lifting at the top i had to have political i had to have political weight behind some tough decisions that had to be taken. So what was that decision? Um, can, you, can you walk me through it? It was the decision on, on, um, on Soviet refugees. Okay. Can you set the during, context for it? During Daddy Bush, um, George H.W., when he came in to office in uh, 1988, he won in 88, and there was a transition between 88 and 89, I was in policy planning in the State Department as the Soviet expert. I had just come back from Moscow. And um, the new folks coming in, James Baker, of course, was coming in as secretary. 
uh, came to me and said, we have been hearing from the Jewish community all during the election about a problem with Soviet Jewish refugees, and we don't understand what it is. And we've been getting turgid memos from different bureaus in the State Department that do not explain the problem in a way that we can understand it. So do you know what it is, and can you explain it in a couple of paragraphs for a busy executive? And I said, yeah, I know. I know what it is, and I can explain it. So I did. And they came back to me, and they said, okay, we understand it now. Can you tell us what the solution might be? And I said, yeah, I can tell you, but I'll, it's, it's going to take some real heavy lifting to, to solve this problem and, and some very creative um, decisions inside the government. And I'm not sure we, we're capable of that. Uh, and they said, well, go ahead. No, just describe what it is, and then we'll decide what we're going to do. So I did. So what, what and, was the um, problem and what was your solution? Well, the problem was this. I was in the Soviet Union from 86 to, to, in Moscow from 86 to late 88 during the late Gorbachev years. You remember that, that the Berlin Wall came down just a year later. Um, so it was the later part of the Gorbachev years, and, and he, the, the, the reforms that he was beginning to introduce had already started to have an impact. And one of the impacts was that they were loosening up on exit visas. You had to have an exit visa to get out of the country if you were a Soviet citizen. And so Jewish people were able to get exit visas to Israel, which had not been available before. And they they started getting these exit visas and leaving the country, going to Europe, which was the first stop on the way, and spinning off to um, Vienna and then to Italy, which was the route for Soviet refugees to get to the United States as, as refugees. Because the refugee program is very important. It, it brings you in, in, in virtually an immigrant status. You have asylum, but, but it's a straight ticket to immigration. Plus, you get all the support of um, the uh, welfare system and NGOs and all sorts of other things. The U.S. government... Uh, provides a lot of support for refugees coming into the country. So there's there's a limited number that we will take in every year because it has to be tied to budgets mm-hmm. in HHS and the State Department and various other places. So um, we didn't have the numbers for all of these Soviet refugees, most of whom were Jewish, who were piling up in Europe. And so the INS, the Immigration Service, was denying them refugee approval. Mm-hmm. And their families here were going berserk because they said, these guys should be getting refugee status. What is, what, what's happened? Well, they couldn't manage the flow. My solution was, and, and by then we had like 70,000 of these people piled up on the beaches of, of Italy, and, and the uh, Refugee Bureau in the State Department was paying the bill for everything, um, including their rent. So uh, my solution was, look, Things have changed in Moscow, and we can move. We can go to um, orderly departure processing, which we had used with Vietnam to stop the boat, the flow of boat people. We had started processing potential refugees in Saigon, in the old foreign ministry, mm-hmm. for 
refugee status and immigration to the United States, and that had given them an alternative to getting into boats. Uh, And that was called orderly departure. We've used it since then in other places, uh, for example, in Latin America. But um, So I said we could do orderly departure for these people out of Moscow, which would um, set a priority on the ones that should come to the United States who have family here. And then the others always have Israel. They can always go to Israel. It's not as if they don't have a safe place to go. Uh, and Israel would welcome them with open arms. And Israel was quite upset that they were all diverting to go to the U.S., so that was part of the problem here, too. Israel that wanted Israel them. Israel was really upset. Hmm? Israel wanted them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look at the huge migration. Yeah. This created a big migration to Israel, by yeah. the way. Yeah. So, so um, <clears throat> what we had to do was move it back to Moscow and set up the structures there for uh, process of, processing them in Moscow and then flying them to the United States. And then we had to close down the processing in Europe. We had to put it out of bounds. So these are the things that I, that I laid out. And it took a lot of heavy lifting to get people to agree to that. I had to get the immigration service to agree to re-adjudicate all of the people in Italy under new... Um, new terms of reference mm-hmm. that had been uh, somewhat eased from what they were using earlier so that we could get them out of Italy, and most of them had relatives in the United States, get them here. Um, and secondly, we had to close the route in Europe. We had to say, you will no longer be eligible for admission to the United States as a refugee if you, if you try to apply in Europe. You have to make your application in Moscow. And don't leave home unless you have approval already to come here. And so we set up a very elaborate system in Moscow. Um, and it, I had to use uh, different parts of the State Department, um, particularly consular affairs and the refugee program. And I had to use international organizations. And when, then we had to work it out with, with the, the uh, refugee resettlement agencies in the United States, the NGOs that that take care of these people. So it was quite complicated. And you had to but give the agency it. like their own kind of, you had to throw them a bone. You had to, you had to give them some incentives to want to work with you on this. You mean the other agencies? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. And the other bureaus sure. in, in the state department as well. Yeah. Uh, well, some of the incentive was a whip, <laughs> but I had the deputy secretary, Larry, Larry Eagleberger as my whip and the undersecretary for management, Ivan Sullen. They were both behind me, and so whenever I ran into resistance, particularly in the State Department, they would step in and just say, no, you're going to do it this way. Fascinating. So, so- um, Consular people, it was very funny. We, 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 with the help of some creative minds in the consular department, we designed a, a new fancy computerized um, processing uh, system that we set up in Roslyn uh, for all of the applications we were getting out of Moscow. And um, it, it had a scanner machine in it so that we could scan this stuff right into the, the computers. And the consular people, in, in the, nobody in the State Department had been allowed to have a scanner machine, nor did they have the advanced uh, computer stuff that we were able to get. The State Department is very, very backward on this. And um, that's part of the reason Hillary Clinton was using her own email. 
<clears throat> I mean, yeah, her own mm-hmm. email because the State Department is so so bad. At any rate, um, uh, so consular got very upset and they said, no, no, you can't have that because we can't have it. You can't have it. And so I, I just had to have Ivan Sellen say they can have it. It's going to go ahead. Uh, um, yeah. And so he allocated $10 million to me for setting up these systems. And, and then I had uh, the refugee program money. Uh, by the, in the meantime, I moved. Uh, when I, after I, as I was moving this decision through the system, it took about six months, and we were coming to a conclusion. They actually assigned me to be the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Refugee Bureau. So I went from policy planning to uh, line responsibility. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I then became responsible for making this happen. So that's perfect. I you had, designed the I policy had, and yeah, you I designed are the I designed the policy, then they put me in place to carry it out, and I had the budget because the refugee program had the money. Mm-hmm. Plus, I had the money that Ivan Sellen had given me from the State Department budget. Um, and I didn't use all of it. I think I only used about three or four million. I gave the rest of it back to him. Huh. So it's funny. So in 1989 or 1990, I was in fourth grade at a Jewish day school in Connecticut. And I think you're the reason that my new classmate, Russell from Russia, uh, arrived right. into, uh, into our class mid-year. Yep. Did he arrive as a refugee? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, well, that's fascinating. He has so, me so to thank. <laughs> uh, I think so. I think he's so. a great guy too. Really smart, smart, talented. Yeah. Fourth grader. Well, <laughs> a lot of talented people came. In the end, we brought a million, a million under Amazing. that program. It finally closed down about the time that I retired in 2002. Um, so, so from '89 uh, to 2002. I would love to, to go back and, and talk a little bit more uh, about you and your career. I mean, this is fascinating. Like I, I said, you really kind of bring home with that story. And it was a long story, uh, but, but an important one uh, uh, about the ways in which bureaucratic politics um, make, uh, make foreign policy in, in, many, in many cases. And, and like, as I said earlier, that book is, is just a treasure trove of, of stories What makes and foreign policy, I think, it, successful from a practitioner's point of view, if you're in the government, you have to understand bureaucratic politics. You have to understand that where you sit is where you stand on an issue. And you have to make sure the the best way to approach a complex issue is to have a team, a dedicated team, and, and work out how you can make sure that everybody gets an interest in the decision, in the final decision. Um, all, there yeah. are always going to be spoilers. So you need... You know, if it's if it's something important, you need to have a heavy hand that will come in and and break through the the mess for you. Um, so I would love to learn a little bit more about you and, and where you're from. So where where are you from? When where were you born? Uh, in Massachusetts, in a small town, twenty miles outside of Boston. In those days, I'm nearly seventy five now. So in those days, it was very small. It's it's a bedroom now to Boston. In those days, it was a mill town. Mm-hmm. And what Boston town? seemed very, very far away. It was called Walpole. Walpole. Oh yeah, I know Walpole. I yeah, went to uh, I went to Tufts. Yeah. Hmm. I, I went to uh, Tufts University, not too far from there. Oh yeah. Well, Walpole yeah. is exactly halfway on Route 95 between Boston and Providence. Um. So, how did you get into foreign policy issues uh, growing up? Was was your family involved? Were your parents in in the foreign no, policy? Absolutely world? No, absolutely not. My family was very small town. My father had a business in Walpole called Walpole Woodworkers that builds fences and outdoor houses and furniture and stuff. 
it's uh, sort of top of the line outdoor stuff. It's still around. In fact, there's a branch here in Washington, well, in Great Falls, that's very successful. Oh wow! <laughs> because of the money in this area. Um, at any rate, my father had this business, and um, I was born in well, actually during World War II. So I was a pre pre boomer. A pre-boomer, barely a pre-boomer. a pre-boomer, we'll say, just by a few years, mm-hmm. uh, just by a few years, a, a pre-boomer. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I was born just before we got into the war, so yeah, it was pre-boom. Um, and so, um, growing up, I mean, in 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 the 50s, so growing up, yeah. I I was very much in the post-war atmosphere, and um, in the fifties, you know, the Cold War became more and more intense, but I became fascinated by Russia. I was a great reader, I mean, a very avid reader, and I had taken on Russian novels as a teenage. Well, I was in junior high and high school at the time. Um, the two things came together. I was reading Russian novels, and I was starting to study foreign languages. I started with Latin, and then I started, and then I took French while I was in high school. And I, I loved the languages, and I decided that I really wanted to learn more about Russia and um, and that I would wanted to study Russian language. And even as I graduated from high school, I can tell from my yearbook that I had already communicated that to all of my, my friends there, that I was going to study Russian and major in Russian. So I went to Middlebury and I majored in Russian. Mm-hmm. That's a big language school and back then too, right? It was. Yeah. It was. And it was one of the few places that you could find a major in Russian. I didn't want uh, just a girls' school. My mother wanted me to go to one of the Seven Sisters, and I refused to go to an all-girls school. Um, I didn't think it was healthy. <laughs> so I went to Middlebury and majored in Russian, and when I came out, I uh, wanted to work with Russian. And I found a job with Radio Liberty headquarters in New York. Ah, okay. Do you remember Radio oh, Liberty? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it still exists in a, to a certain degree, right? This is the Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, right? Yeah, but they've got a an office in Moscow now. They've got a <laughs> Moscow Bureau. In those days, it was a propaganda machine, and it was funded by the CIA. I didn't know that. Both Radio Europe and Radio Free Europe, I mean, Radio Liberty and Radio Free Europe were funded by the CIA um, to you know send messages, propaganda back into behind the Iron Curtain. Um, so there I was in New York. I worked there for a year, and I got into a, a graduate program sponsored by the University of Oklahoma at the Radio Liberty um, facility. was a research facility in Munich, Germany, because most of their, their programming was done out of Munich. The headquarters in Washington only did a little bit. It was mostly just management. Was the program, like, part talk but also like sending i don't know like the beatles over the airwaves sort of thing there weren't any beatles then yeah a little early i suppose the beatles the beatles were just emerging then mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. no it was more it was more sending our side of the story and mm-hmm. they had all russian mm-hmm. broadcasters most yeah. of them were emigres who were kind of wild-eyed crazy i was there when kennedy was assassinated, and they thought that it was a military coup in the United States, or a coup of some sort, which, of course, never occurred to us. But they were sure that 
that we were doomed. Fascinating. I couldn't believe it. Well, because they're yeah. they're sort of conditioned that way, I suppose. Having you know, oh, absolutely, grown up, absolutely. You know, probably yeah. left during the Stalin. They were still era. living oh. in 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 the um, like Stalinist, sort of yeah. the Soviet yeah. Union. So anyway, I went off to Munich and wound up spending the rest of that year in Europe, and then I came back to home in Walpole, Massachusetts, and and decided I better get a job. So I looked up a an old friend, a Russian friend, in fact, who was teaching at MIT. He had been a, a professor at Middlebury. I took the summer course in Russian before I graduated from Middlebury. So I, I'd already done some graduate work and I met him there. So I, I, I checked in with him at, at uh, MIT and cause he was always my mentor. And he hooked me up with a small research firm that was doing contracts with the defense department. Uh, particularly with the Air Force on uh, following Soviet civil aviation. So I got a job there to read all of the newspapers and magazines and everything I could, Gajdanskaya Aviatsiya and all of these, and, and follow Soviet civil aviation, which was actually part of, of their military program. Mm-hmm. And that's why we wanted to follow it, because it gave us an idea of production figures in, in various military factories. Uh, and so I was doing that and, um, along and, and they then, the, the firm got a contract to do some arms control work, small arms, and they put me on that. And eventually, you know, just by working, I became an expert on the flow of small arms around the world. And I started working with the ISS in London. It was then not the IISS, but the ISS. Was it the Institute for Security Studies or something like that? Well, on, on small arms, yeah, with oh, arms small control. Arms. Okay. Arms control. <clears throat> you know how they produce the military balance? Mm-hmm. Well, I, <clears throat> at the time, the military balance only covered the Warsaw Pact and NATO countries <clears throat> and, um, and, and other big ones like Japan, China, so forth. <clears throat> so they decided that they wanted to start putting all countries in it, and I provided the database. Huh. for them so, to start doing all of the other countries because I had so much in my in my files. And I also um, produced the first database for CIPRI, which is the Swedish Institute yeah. of Peace yeah. Research in yeah, Stockholm. That's, yeah, that's, that's a well-known peace research institute. Well, it um, was just founded at the time that I was at this company. And they also, the company also contracted me out full-time to MIT Center for International Studies. So I actually sat over there and worked a lot. So how did you end up in the State Department? Oh, that's, this is just the beginning. (laughs) Anyway, um, because I became such an expert on small arms, uh, somebody at Brookings who was supposed to be writing a book on arms transfers and, and military assistance training and so forth, uh, had writer's block, and he he hired, he contracted with me. He approached me and asked me if I would help him draft the first two chapter, chapters of his book. And so he hired me under contract, and I came down to Brookings for a couple of weeks. Um, I think it was in about 74. Mm-hmm. And I wrote mm-hmm. the first two chapters of his book, and he was so happy. He had me come back and refine them for another two weeks. And then he said, I want you to come and work with me here. And I said, well, only if you can make me a research associate, which was 
at that time reserved for PhDs, and I was nothing but a BA. Um, Mm -hmm. So he did. He convinced the powers that be to make me a research associate, and they brought me on full-time in Brookings in 1975. So I moved from Boston to Washington. Can can I ask... Like mm-hmm. working in, in this milieu in the early 1970s and late 1960s in a really hard security field that today is still very male dominated. Did you well, find I'm yourself? The only woman in the room. That's what I have to imagine. I mean, what, what was your experience with that? I mean, back in, in the 1970s. Well, there was one woman that I worked with at MIT, but, but every place else I worked, it was all men. When I got to Brookings, there were some women, but they were mostly, well, Alice Rivlin was there, the economist. Uh, at a senior level, but most of them were research assistants or secretaries. Mm-hmm. You're you're like um, one, you're probably on the foreign policy side of things, the only like woman there. I, I have to imagine. Yeah, particularly in the security and arms control area at that time. Yeah, I didn't really think much about it. Okay. Um, but one organization that that was offering me a job uh, wasn't. Giving you know it was a kind of a low level job compared to where I was at Brookings and or what I was getting what I was being offered at Brookings and and um, I said you know this really isn't going to make it for me so uh, you either have to go back to the drawing boards and come up with a a competitive offer or it's not going to work and they came back with something but it still wasn't competitive. And I said, you know, it's just not enough. And they said, well, we can't do, go beyond that because it would demoralize the men. <laughs> Amazing. And what organization? And I said, can okay. You, no, you I can't tell you. That. Name, I said, name that's 30 your years problem later. and not yeah. mine. Oh, good. Good for you. So you stayed at Brookings. That's fascinating. That's, that's really say, interesting. It was, part of, it was part of the U.S. government. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, you know, even like I said, even these days, you know, the kind of hard security field is still male dominated. Obviously, not as much as it is then. So it's kind of fascinating to to learn a little bit more of your experience through like a gender dynamic. Mm. Um, so anyway, yeah. I I wound up doing this book for this man, <laughs> which never got published because ah. I recommended against publishing it. Um, and while I was finishing it up, Mort Halpern came to me and he said, I'm doing a book on bureaucratic politics and I desperately need your help. I want you to come and work with me and help me finish this book and get it out. And because um, it was in very, very rough state. And I said, well, I have an obligation to finish my first project here. So I have to do that, which took a few more months. I had a nine-month contract or something, so I finished that. And then I moved over with Mort, and then he got all wrapped up in the Ellsberg trial Mm -hmm. and left Brookings and went out to California to to be an expert witness for Ellsberg. And this is the and, Pentagon Papers and, trial for people who don't know. And, yeah, and we should say Mark Halpern uh, was a, mm-hmm. a State Department official in the Nixon administration. He's uh, who was, you know, left or resigned or fired, was sort of somehow blacklisted um, by the the Nixon who, administration. Ellsberg? No, 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 Mort Halpern. Right? Isn't that Mort the story? Halpern was never in the State Department. He was in the Defense Department. Defense Department. The okay. Pentagon Papers were written in the Defense Department. Okay. Okay. And Dan- Daniel Ellsberg, Les Gelb. Mort Halperin, a lot of very famous names later, Mm -hmm. were engaged in in writing the Pentagon Papers, and they were really a a damn condemnation, a 
using using real records. They were a condemnation of the decisions we had taken in Vietnam. Yes. Everything we were doing there. And it was under McNamara. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Ellsberg leaked it. Leaked it. Um, yes. and, 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 so and, and, and Mort Halpern. Nixon yeah. blamed everybody that had been involved in it. Mm-hmm. And Mort Halpern had moved in the meantime from the Defense Department to the White House, the NSC, where he worked under Henry Kissinger. So from the NSC, he came to Brookings. And it, it was about the time that this, the Ellsberg business and was breaking. And so he left the NSC, came to Brookings, and um, and during the period of the, uh, you know, you remember the the plumbers, yeah, Watergate, the Nixon Watergate, right? yeah, yeah, Watergate plumbers, the 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 team that was going around breaking into things, trying to find documents. Well, one of the places that they were aiming at was Brookings because they thought that Brookings had in its safe, which actually didn't exist, um, a copy of the Pentagon Papers. And that's not true. I mean, it was just never there. So they had been planning uh, to firebomb the Brookings, create a diversion, and and get this out of the safe. (laughs) It was very silly. All of that came out when I was there at Brookings. And Mort had gone off. So I was left to put this book together and bring it out. Uh, which I did in 1974. So I worked on that from 72 to 74. And then during that period, Henry Owen, who was the head of foreign policy, also got me involved in in working with Japan. So I started doing a lot of work on Japan. In fact, I started writing books, and, and again, with Mort. Uh, actually, Mort also wanted me to work on Japan. Um, so by the time I left Brookings, I had a reputation for expertise in Japan and arms control. Mm-hmm. And um, the Russian was had sort of receded into the background. And in 1975, um, I moved over into the State Department to the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency through connections there and started working on, on small arms and nuclear nonproliferation. So your, your first time at the State Department was, was 75? Well, it was 75 as civil service in Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, which, of course, has now been folded into the State Department fully. Mm-hmm. At that time, it was an autonomous agency oh, okay. located in, physically in the State Department. And now it's, it's the... So, uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. So anyway, I was sitting there in 1976 when Carter was elected. And with the transition, you know, he was inaugurated in 77. Uh, with the transition, all my friends from Brookings and Carnegie came in as assistant secretaries yeah. to the State Department. Because that so happens. They pulled me. <laughs> right? You, you, you know, Brookings, you know, is kind of left of center. So Nixon, the Republican, was in charge. And, and so everyone was sort of in exile at, at Brookings in the think tank world. And then I don't think it's in, really right? left of center now. No, it's not. It it's just, yeah, now it's just center center, right? Yeah, it's sort of a it's sort of amorphous. Yeah, yeah. It's so then, huge now. Yeah. In those days, it was quite small. And the head of Brookings had been Lyndon Johnson's management and budget person in the in the White House. Mm-hmm. 
And so you, everyone came in, all, all of your, your old colleagues came in and, and got pretty top-level positions. So they all the came in as assistant secretaries. Working for Cyrus Vance. Um, with Cyrus Vance. Uh, Tony Lake, Dick Holbrook, Les Gelb. So Les Gelb was the one who pulled me over. He was, had been at Brookings. He pulled me over to political mili- military affairs to work on, on arms control and small arms and that sort of thing uh, as his special assistant. Uh, in the front office, and I stayed, I, because I was civil service, it was easy. Um, ACTA just sort of let me go ahead. They kept paying me and let me go ahead and work for the transition. Uh, and then when, it, when the time came, you know, a few months later, I changed my status to a political appointee position that no longer exists, but it was foreign service grade. Mm-hmm. And so I was in the State Department, political appointee, foreign service, when when I was working for Les Gelb. And he left after about a year and a half or two years. And Dick Holbrook invited me to come over to the East Asia Bureau because of my Japan background. And so I, I spent the rest of that administration working for Dick Holbrook. So if you're a political... Holbrook, oh, sorry, go ahead. Holbrook decided I belonged in the foreign service. Oh, ah, okay. Because... These guys had, had been in the Foreign Service and left because of Vietnam, mm-hmm. left in protest to the Vietnam War. Tony Lake, Dick Holbrook, Bill Maines, a lot of those people. Of course, Les had been in the Pentagon. He was part mm-hmm. of the Pentagon Papers. So, And Tony Lake, we should say, is uh, Bill Clinton's former National Security Advisor and now currently the head of UNICEF. Right. And, and Tony Lake at that time was the head of came in as the head of policy planning in the State Department. Dick Holbrook came in as the assistant secretary for East Asia. And Bill Maines uh, was the assistant secretary for international organizations. So Les Gelb was political mm-hmm. military. So yeah, so, so my question was, so you were a political appointee, but then Reagan came over, but somehow you became a, a foreign service officer from being a political appointee? Well, here's where I benefited from women and minority programs, finally, (laughs) 40 years old, (laughs) well-established in my profession. Um, And Dick Holbrook decides I belong in the Foreign Service, but you can't lateral into the Foreign Service. You generally have to start at the bottom, no matter what your age is, and work your way up. But they, because the Foreign Service had discriminated against women for so many years, they were forced by a court there was a, a class action suit brought against them. They lost it. The court decreed that they had to open a window for women and minorities mid-level entry into the Foreign Service for a five-year period so that they could correct the imbalance that had been created. And so I was able to slip into the Foreign Service at the grade that I was in the State Department as a political appointee, which was a pretty high grade, and start my career in the Foreign Service in an officer position. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like so processing visas. State... Yeah. Hmm? As opposed to processing visas, which is how normally foreign service officers right. start their career. Right. I didn't do that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so that's um, how you as a Carter appointee, uh, emerged and, and survived and, and, and thrived, I suppose in the Reagan administration. Became a career, career yes. foreign service okay. officer. Right. And and the East Asian Bureau immediately had a position for me in Japan. So they sent me into the political military job in Japan 
which was a fascinating job, uh, via language training, which is exactly what I wanted. So I spent um, 14, I guess it was 14 months in intensive Japanese language training on my way out to Tokyo. What were the and then big I spent four years bilateral issues um, between Japan and the USA in the years that you were there? Well, that was the time when there was panic here that Japan was overtaking us economically. Um, you know, remember Ezra Vogel and Japan is number one. And mm-hmm. Mike Mansfield was, was the, uh, the ambassador during the whole period I was here. In fact, he was the longest serving ambassador ever in Japan, 12, 13 years, something long. And um, he used to say the U.S.-Japanese relationship is the most important bilateral relationship in the world, bar none. And so <laughs> we used to say we're working on the bar none ranch in Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> um. But anyway, Japan was, was on the upsurge at that time, both economically and politically. Nakasone was the prime minister. He was a very outward-looking guy. Japan had been inward-looking until then. And uh, they were beginning to flex their muscle, and, and we were becoming much more active in joint exercises and, uh, you know, working together with Japan, uh, the Japanese military, which had grown to quite large proportions by then. Mm-hmm. And that was my job, was facilitating that relationship. Um, so it was fascinating. So uh, you, you spent, you said, four years in Japan, and where did you Four years next? in Japan, and then I went to Moscow. I okay, finally, to Moscow, my, your, your whole... My background in, in yeah. Soviet studies, and got posted to Moscow. It was all sort of fluky. Um, and what year was and that? It was in 86, and okay. I, I came back to Washington in 85. What, when did I leave? I left um, Japan in 85. I came back to Washington and did um, nine or ten months of Russian language, intensive Russian language, Mm -hmm. and then went out to Moscow in the summer of 86. Um, Did you ever meet Gorbachev in that time? um, Yeah, but not in any way that you would really remember. I I mostly dealt with Sherrod Nazi, who was the foreign minister. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I did spend time with him, what was, and of course, yeah. my counterparts in the in the foreign ministry. And what was your job uh, in Moscow? I mean, this is a, I was the deputy political counselor, and I was the head of I was in charge of external relations, which means Soviet foreign policy, Soviet relations with the outside world. And then there was a there was a, another part of in in most of our political sections and embassies, you had two parts, external and internal. Uh, so there was, there was another part that followed internal political. But the, the political counselor stepped aside during my second year there, and I was actually acting political counselor, managing the whole so, political section. So, so I mean, and that was this a very absolute, turbulent right. time. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's my question. So this is the absolute height of the Cold War. Uh, you are an American foreign reserve officer, very high-ranking official in the U.S. Embassy in, in, in Moscow. Um, how, you know, I suppose as a foreign service officer, you know, you're supposed to sort of get along and, and or at least understand the, the local culture in, in which you're working. Did you ever have like internal conflicts about sort of the posture of the Reagan administration towards the Soviet Union and your own ability to carry out your, your job on, on a day-to-day basis? 
Um, no, it didn't really affect my job. Reagan did the right thing with the Soviet Union, you may recall, when he suddenly decided he wanted to end nuclear weapons. And he and Gorbachev sat together in Helsinki and decided they were going to go to zero. <laughs> and it, it panicked everybody. Um, were you a part of those negotiations? I wasn't there, but I was. my ambassador was there. Mm-hmm. So I know what went on. What was your initial um, but thought? At any when, rate, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. the Soviet Union kind of warmed to Reagan because of the way he turned things around. And, and we went from one of the darkest periods in our relationship, at least for the embassy, uh, to one of the best in a period of just a few months in 1987. And we started having intensive... Uh, ministerial level meetings two or three t- two two times a year I think it was two no maybe it was four quarterly quarterly yeah so that um, Schultz was the Secretary of State at the time he would come to Moscow with a huge tribe of of government officials from Washington two times a year and then Sherrod Nazi would go to Washington twice a year with a similar large posse so we were talking about everything having gone from talking about nothing, we were now talking about everything. And it was a very interesting time. It was really, really busy. Enormous pressure. Uh, and that was... I, I left there in late 88, just before the election. Mm-hmm. Um, came back to Washington. And when Bush came in, of course, that's when everything just started moving fast. Mm-hmm. And... A year later, in 1989, in October, the wall came down. And the year after that, the Soviet Union began to break apart. So I was there right on the cusp of, yeah. of the, the breakup of the Soviet Union. I couldn't have imagined it at the time. Um, and, Nobody and, imagined And that's when my fourth grade classmate, Russell, came to a little Jewish school in Connecticut. Um, Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to just fast forward a a little bit and, and uh, in the last few minutes, talk uh, about Burma, which I know you played a a big role, uh, in, in terms of us policy in in Burma in the late nineties and and early two thousands, including it's my understanding you were there during, uh, the, at the moment, I suppose when Aung San Chi was, was released from house arrest. No, she wasn't under house arrest when I was there. She was not. Okay. She was under city arrest, but not house arrest. Oh, some sort of arrest. She was in and out. She was in and out of detention of various mm-hmm. forms for a long time. She wasn't under actual technical house arrest until um, the time period from 2003 to 2011. Mm-hmm. And by, I mean, the, well, no, 2010, the elections, November 2010. So that seven-year period. I wasn't there then. So how did you right come to, to Burma? How, how did you make it there? What was the... Uh, and, and, well, Madeleine Albright wanted me to go out as the charge to take care of her friend Aung San Suu Kyi, whom she had met after the the Beijing Women's Conference. And um, so I was sent out there as, you know, foreign service. And it was I knew it was my last post because I was already up against uh, my time limit. You know, the Foreign Service has an age and time limit, Mm -hmm. like the military, time and class. Um, So it was going to be my last post. 
And uh, it was a very interesting challenge for me. But I went out there knowing that it was my last post and thinking on the advice of one of my former Foreign Service colleagues that I should make this into my retirement position because, I mean, my retirement work because it it was going to change. The country was going to change and it was going to happen in my lifetime. And I was going to be one of the only people who knew much about what was going on inside. And sure enough, that's, that's exactly what happened. And but I, but there's one piece missing here that you didn't mention. I was in South Africa for the Mandela transition. Oh, and you were, were you, you were the uh, ambassador. Is that I right? was deputy ambassador. Deputy ambassador. Yeah. Okay. DCM, deputy chief of mission in 1990. So I was in the one? middle. I was in right middle in the of middle of that transition. I know, I knew Mandela. I knew Cyril Ramaphosa, Rolf Mayer, Budalese, all of those people. Uh, we were what was dealing do, with? Can you tell me the story of the first time you met Nelson Mandela? Uh, the first time I met him was in his office. We, I went with the ambassador to meet with him to talk. They were. It was right after I got there, probably within a week of when I arrived. The ambassador was going around talking to all of the key figures in the 26-party talks because uh, Budalese had walked out and they were they were deadlocked and they just didn't know how to bring it back together again. And so we were going around trying to figure out what everybody's position was to see if there were were some reasonable ways out. And so we went to talk to Mandela, Budalese, the negotiators, you know, the white right wing and the others. Um, and that's how I first met Mandela. Was, what was that meeting was, like? Uh, was it business-like? Well, was he char- I mean, any, yeah. any meeting with Mandela is just fabulous. But he... He was always, um, he was always sort of head and shoulders above everybody else. First of all, he was a tall, very handsome, erudite man, um, and he was very philosophical about things. Rather, he wasn't down in the weeds uh, about you know negotiating positions and that sort of thing. He would sort of make jokes about Budalese and and um, talk about what where they had to come out and uh and he also sort of made jokes about um uh what's his name the um de clerk or the something. south african prime minister de at clerk. the time de clerk yeah de clerk um he he was very funny extremely eloquent i mean it, in in his use of language, really amazing. So you knew you were in his like the presence. His best speeches were were yeah. ad hoc, mm-hmm. not read, but ad hoc. He was very good. Um, so I saw him in that meeting, but then I also saw him a lot socially, like at dinner and and, and social occasions. And and he did a lot of joking, and um, he was just a very nice person. I also visited him at at his home in Pretoria. Um, a couple of times. How was his? And I had I mean, a fa- farewell call on him. I have a picture from that. Oh. When I was leaving, he was president then. Once he became president, he wasn't as accessible as before that. What was his um, relationship with the United States? I mean, uh, uh, and and you as a representative of the United States. I mean, was it was it tense still at that point? I mean, for years in South the, Africa. Yeah, yeah. Not not really. Um, just because you Not know, for really, years the Reagan we were, administration, we were helping them. Yeah, 
Well, this is this was Clinton. Yeah, I, I know. I, I realize, but um, I wonder if there are like any lingering um, animosities, perhaps, that you could sense. Well, there were in some quarters, probably, but um, it didn't affect me. Mm-hmm. And it really didn't affect the work of the embassy because, you know, things move on quickly in the diplomatic world. You don't have to deal with a lot of baggage because um, events propel things. And we were very much in the middle of these negotiations. And because our ambassador at the time was Princeton Lyman, who's absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. And um, because we were talking to everybody in the 26 party talks, all the major figures, we knew more than anybody about where everybody stood and where, where the, the openings might be. Uh, where it might be possible to find compromises. And Princeton was able to sort of rationalize with some of these guys, particularly Budalese. And we had some high-level people coming out from Washington whom we used uh, to help with this process. So it was a very, very interesting uh, period. When did you realize that you, um, that, that success was, was there, that those, that the talks would result in, in a really workable, decent outcome? Was there a moment where you, where you had that realization? Not until the day of the elections. Actually the day of because the elections. You have, wow. You probably don't remember the details, but Budalese didn't actually come back in mm-hmm. until and says the, the far right back guy, in. right? He he is the what? Can you can you remind listeners who Budalese was? Oh, Budalese was the head of the Zulu party. Uh, right. Yeah, the Zulu nation. Yeah, yeah. in Durban, mm-hmm. and he originally, when they started the negotiation, De Klerk and the National Party had the idea that they would join forces with Budalese to form one big multi multi ethnic party, and and sort of beat the ANC, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, they got into the negotiations and, and it was deadlocked. The ANC wasn't going to buy that. So the National Party decided that they really had to join forces with the ANC to make this work, and Budalese felt really wounded by that. So he became quite petulant and eventually walked out. So he, he had wanted to be the first black prime minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there was a great rivalry between him and Mandela, mostly on Budalese's side, because he he had wanted to be the guy who, who came out on top. He was not a great intellect, but, but you know, he was... He, he had was a constituency. A, a, major, yeah. a major leader. Um, um, but Mandela knew that the ANC would prevail, so he just stayed above the whole fray. At any rate, um, uh, so Budalese didn't agree even to come back in uh, until one week before the elections. And and his party had to be posted, I mean, pasted, pasted onto all of the ballots because mm-hmm. uh, they had, the ballots were already printed. By those then, ballots so are amazing, by the way. I've seen, I've seen copies of those ballots. Yeah, uh, I have one hanging on my Yeah, wall. it's just an amazing like it's almost like a piece of art that ballot. I, I have to say it's it's all with all the different yeah. parties listed and the symbols and it's just like an amazing an amazing thing to yeah. to see. So I, and and also 
the week before the elections, the the extreme right wing was setting off bombs uh, at the airport and in Pretoria. I mean, the airport in Johannesburg and in buildings in Pretoria. So it was really quite scary. And it wasn't until election day that everything started. Just the sun came out and everybody was happy and parading around the streets with the new South African flag and and going to the polls and voting and and it's it just all dissipated the whole thing came together so we didn't that was when when we knew it had worked but not before that uh well uh ambassador clapmas clap thank you so much for your time and and for speaking with me this is a uh, some great stories okay well we didn't we didn't talk about burma very much but if you want to do that we can always do it another time i'll i'll keep going that's, that's keep a very going. interesting Situation. Do you want to keep going? Mm-hmm. You, I'll, I'll keep going if you can. I, I just very I want to be respectful of your time, but if you have some more time, I mean, this is great. I, I think people love listening to it. Let me just take a look here. I've got some construction going on in my front yard. Yeah, yeah I'm okay for a few more minutes. Okay, so um, so yeah, the 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 Burma story. So so what was the, your first? Can you tell me the first time you met on Sun Tzu Chi? Well, Burma. When I went out there in 1999, was a very different place than it is today. It was under really repressive military rule. Um, it reminded me a lot of Moscow. Uh, military intelligence had been trained by the KGB, and they, they did, had a lot of the same tactics that I had grown to know and love in Moscow. Uh-huh. And um, so it was sort of old home week for me, <laughs> getting to Rangoon. <laughs> Moscow in the tropics. Yeah. Um, well, what was the same? Is, is there like a, an example of something you can say that was quite similar? You well, know? I had surveillance on my on my home, sitting in the next building, looking down on me. <laughs> could, could you like see and, the surveillance and I was watching? Followed you? everywhere. Yeah. Hmm? Was it very transparent that the uh, surveillance was following you and watching you all the time? Oh yeah, I, <laughs> I could see them. Oh, that's funny. Sometimes they didn't even try to hide. <laughs> If I was on the golf course, I'd have two MI guys walking behind me. But they they were actually there for security more than for surveillance. Ah, okay. They did both. (laughs) That's funny. Um, uh, But, yeah, you you know, I'd go to meet with somebody in a restaurant, and there'd be somebody sitting in a corner table, and he was obviously MI. (laughs) Um, That sort of thing. Um, Well, usually you'd, you'd recognize them by the sunglasses. Yeah. Yeah, sunglasses and mustache, right? <laughs> um, so, so, so you said uh, well, that Bernie uh, don't wear mustaches. Hmm? Uh, um, so Albright uh, sent you to check up on and and to to help with uh, on not Sao to Suchi. check up on. She 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 assigned me. She the the East Asian Bureau, the Assistant Secretary for East Asia was the person who who actually sent me out there. Mm-hmm. But it was at the behest of of the secretary Albright who wanted somebody there that could, she could be sure was taking care of Aung San Suu Kyi. And so she personally approved that one, but I was sent out because we didn't, the Congress would not allow the ambassador to Burma to present credentials to a military government, you know, cred- credentials on, on behalf of the U S government, mm-hmm. the U S president. Cause that would be like so, accepting. So the you fact couldn't that, carry yeah. You could not carry the title of ambassador there. Even though you were an ambassador, you had to be called chargé d'affaires. Mm-hmm. So I was in the ambassador's position. I was ambassador as far as 
The State Department was concerned, but I couldn't carry the title because I couldn't hand over credentials. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I was charge. I was the chief of mission. All ambassadors are chief of mission. Um, and uh, what was the first time that you met uh, Aung San Suu Kyi in, in that position? Uh, about a couple of weeks after I got there, once I had recovered from jet lag, because it's exactly the reverse of the time here, mm -hmm. um, she came to lunch with me at my home, and we spent about three hours just talking and getting acquainted, and she what told was your me a lot about the of her. Well, it was great. I mean, she was like a buddy. She was... Well, first of all, she was very beautiful, very delicate, very very well put together. She takes great pride in, in designing and having her clothes handmade. Uh, and so she has beautiful, beautiful things. And, uh, and she's very smart, very well read. She, she particularly likes autobiographies and biographies of, of world leaders. Do you remember one that she, she read, read that she that she appreciated? Hmm? Do you remember well, a specific well, she autobiography? She appreciated many of them. Mm -hmm. I can't pick out one and say one was what she appreciated. I brought her. She has, from time to time, when I was there and when she was in detention, um, I would she would request biographies, autobiographies, certain books, and I would get my hands on them and give them to her. Do you remember Once any one of those? Wanted, um, like what you want? I don't. No. I don't. It, I'm too old for that. You <laughs> shouldn't be asking me these questions. Ah, uh, well, you. I've you're... got too many facts in my head to remember the names of books <laughs> that I gave people at one point or another. But I can remember one thing that she, when I went out there in 2012, I think it was, um, I asked what she would like me to bring, and she wanted um, a set of the. Uh, um, Jane, what is it, Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, and um, all of the BBC movies that were done. Huh. Of the, it's Jane Austen, right? Jane yeah. Austen yep, books. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So I took a whole set of that. Very expensive. <laughs> that's funny. And she was delighted. So she loves those. Um, She's very British. Yeah, because yeah, that's right. where she mm -hmm. that's where she was brought up, really in in sort of British schools, India and, and England, and so she her she has she speaks with a British accent. She she um, you know reminded me of a lot of my British friends. How, how well do you think she has managed the transition from sort of well known dissident to important key political uh, actor in a country and she, she's well, the she de facto was leader a of the key party political actor well now she it's actually has controls the reins of state power before yeah well now she has some 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 state power uh behind her so well, now she has a yeah now she's running the government so so, so how so has that transition I, suited her i mean i think she's done a brilliant job actually um i don't agree with those who who are picking away at her and saying the nld doesn't know what it's doing and mm -hmm. they have no experience uh, they don't know how to govern. Well, that's like saying the military did a good job. I don't think they did a good job of governing that country. I think the NLD is actually doing much better mm -hmm. uh, because they've got the interests of the population at heart. 
and they're not corrupt the way the military was. The military was motivated more by corruption than they were by public interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I in suppose the final years. human rights uh, folk are, are still deeply concerned about the Rohingya you know, population. Well, and, and the human plight. rights people only think about human rights. They don't look at the whole picture. And they don't, they don't, it's not in their interest to think about the context within which this is happening. They have to be pure about the issue of human rights. It has to be absolutely perfect or they can't. Mm-hmm. I've never heard, no, Human Rights Watch, for example, I've never heard them compliment anyone. <laughs> that's, that's kind of a funny thing to say. I, I wonder, I, I'll have to go through the archives now. Well, there's no such thing as reaching the goal the, the that they've set, goal. because it, once they reached it, their work would be done. Mm-hmm. So they're in the business of criticizing. Uh, you will what? only hear criticism from them, and in fact, some of them uh, deliberately lie about the facts in order to make their case. And so I don't really have a lot of great either sympathy or respect for them. Hmm. Interesting. On, on specifically the Rohingya issue. Yeah, that's really been distorted, terribly distorted. Um, and and I think people don't want to understand. They don't want to sit back and understand the context. It's not unlike what's happening in this country here. People have become so polarized that it's very difficult to have a rational conversation about some of these differences. And it's getting exacerbated by politicians, one in particular, uh-huh. but, um, but many, many at lower levels. And, um, and the same thing ha- is happening there. The Rohingya situation is, is, is in many ways overblown in the international debate. Um, what it is is part of a, a larger divide between the Buddhist and Muslim um, groups in the country, uh, but there are many, many other factors mixed into it: ethnicity and uh, economic factors, and uh, the legacy of military repression. Fifty-five, fifty-five years of military repression. During that fifty-five years, the whole population was held in a state of animated suspension. And if you can imagine, if we in this country had been held for fifty-five years as we were in 1962. If you, if you stopped this country from progressing in 1962, where would we be today? Uh, well, in 1962, we were considerably more advanced than they were when the milita- military took over the country in 1962. So they stayed at, at basically a feudal, feudal level of development for 55 years. And then suddenly... Unexpectedly, in fact, they start coming out of it, and the change there has been very rapid. It's put a lot of, it's created a lot of pressures on the society, and the pressures are being expressed in different ways. Um, the peace process, for example, which is supposed to be bringing all the ethnic groups together and finding some uh, way of, of equalizing ethnicity in the country, is is having the 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 effect of 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 dividing people even further, of, of splintering some of the ethnic groups. All these new groups are coming up saying, we want part of this, we want to be separate too. So, so they're, 
the number of separate ethnic identities has been exploding in the country. And and the Rohingya, not all of the Rohingya in the country, but particularly in the diaspora, because many of these Rohingya are outside the country, not inside. The ones that affect the international debate are outside the country. Um, and they want to be accepted as a separate ethnic group. And they probably want designated territory. And that is anathema to the Rakhine Buddhists in Rakhine State, because mm -hmm. if they were to get separate uh, identity and territory, it would be carved out of this very small, very, very poor state. Um, so there are big, big questions involved in this. And you don't just go in with a, a meat cleaver and cut down through the middle of the problem and say, okay, it's solved. Here's the solution. You have to bring people along, and it's going to take a long time to change attitudes. We've been working on race relations in this country for how long now? Since the since Civil the, War. Since the founding of the country, you might say. Yeah, the founding yeah. of the country. Well, and mm -hmm. why, why, where do we get off telling them that they have to solve this problem right now? It's a very ancient problem in the country. The problem is that people are just discovering Burma. They don't know the history. They don't know the context. So they grab this issue. They take it out of context, and they, and they multiply it into different, something very different. And, and th this becomes the international debate. And then it feeds back into the country in a very negative way and makes it more difficult for the government to deal with it. That's why Aung San Suu Kyi asked the U.S. ambassador, actually she asked all of the diplomatic community, not just the U.S., to stop using the term Rohingya. She said, we will stop using the term Bengali in the government if you will stop using the term Rohingya because the terminology itself is making the problem more difficult to address. Um, well, and that got, that got misinterpreted deliberately in the international press as her telling us we couldn't say Rohingya. That's not what she was saying. She was pleading with the international community to stop making it worse with the language they were using. Uh, well, uh, Priscilla, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been a whirlwind, I, I, I think, of, of a conversation, and I appreciate your final perspective on, on Burma. Uh, so thank you. I just uh, thank you so much for your time, for writing your most amazing book and one of the best books about U.S. foreign <laughs> policy one could, one could purchase. Uh, is there going to be a fourth edition, you think? A third edition? Fourth edition? No, what do you think? No, that's no, it? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm finished writing bureaucratic politics. Oh, uh, okay. Too okay. old for that. All I'm right. writing other things now. Well, what's, what's Most next? Most of what yeah. I write is on Burma now. Oh, great, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. This is great. Okay. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Priscilla. Now, I imagine that many of you might disagree with the final point she made. And I've had people on the podcast before who do disagree with that sentiment. See, for example, the podcast episode titled The Rohingya of Myanmar. Still, it was an honor to speak with her. Real uh, pioneer, groundbreaker, and obviously author of, of a really um, important book to me, an influential book to how I understand the world and how I understand um, how U.S. foreign policy is made. Alrighty, we'll see you next time. Bye.